New York Artists Collective. Hi there and welcome to the New York Artists Collective podcast this next one's about. This is a songwriting podcast where we find some of our favourite artists and ask them to dig deep on one of their songs. I am your host Stephanie Manns and I myself am a singer-songwriter and today's guest is the incredible Dar Williams, described by the New York Times as one of America's very best songwriters. Not only is she an established songwriter, but she's also an author having penned two children's books and one non-fiction book, a lecturer at Wesleyan University, and also hosts an annual songwriting retreat. Dar has also given us an exclusive live recording of her song, When I Was a Boy, so hang around after the interview to find out how you can get a hold of that. Dar is here today to talk about her song, I Am the One Who Will Remember Everything. Dar Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. It's such a such an honor to chat to you, somebody who's been in the business in the songwriting world for 25 plus years, I guess. That's right. That's right. <laughs> At this point. Yeah, I guess so. Well, Taylor, let's uh, launch into talking about your song, I'm the One Who Will Remember Everything. And then I have so many questions about your career um, and all of the different things that you do as, as part of that. Um, so when I asked uh, your, you and your manager what song you wanted to talk about, you picked I Am The One Who Will Remember Everything, which was from your penultimate album, In The Time Of Gods, from 2012. So I was interested that you went back to that album to, to pick a song. So tell me what led you to that decision and, and a bit more about that song. That song seems to have the most context from the outside world coming into it. So, you know, and it was interesting to, I have a very clear memory of the process of writing the song. And also, I think it's an interesting thing because sometimes when we're writing about these big, broad topics, a lot of the decisions have to do with what we leave out of the song and then what we pare down to at the end. So, you know, it's just that song, I, I feel like I had a really big sieve, you know, full of stuff. And then I had to sort it out and really narrow things down to what I was going to say. And I thought that was an interesting challenge to share with other songwriters. Mm-hmm. And you start off, um, by using the child's perspective to kind of introduce your story. True, true. Uh, well, it, it says, let's start with a child who's three and, you know, looking for stability, looking for a parent, and there isn't a parent. <clears throat> so looking to a sibling in the middle of a, a refugee camp of, you know, of displaced people. So we start there. And then then the next verse, the child is five or six mm-hmm. and the child is running around with other kids and sort of in that very unparented way, ripe for conversion into kind of an extreme and very text-based way of looking at the world. So basically the the doctrines of various forms of zealotry will be maybe an authority that they can latch onto because they don't have the warmth and the day-to-dayness of of the parent. Mm-hmm. Was there, I mean, I'm trying to think what was going on in the world in 2012 that might have inspired that song. I mean, it's it's still very relevant now. There, there are a lot of things going on right now. And this this song is still very true. And I think that's a testament to the, the, the strength of the songwriting. But what was going on for you then? The funny thing is that for, for me, things will percolate for a long time. So this was actually inspired by 9-11. But the thing is, I became a parent, you know, in 2004. And somewhere along the way, mm-hmm. I was really aware of the fact that when you're raising kids, you have this thing that you have to do every day. You know, there's just a, a way of passing information and love. And there's just a lot of softness to it. And there's also just a lot of minutiae 
that are part of sort of showing, conveying to your child that you see them and you hear them and you love them and and that they belong somewhere and that the world can be colorful and, and beautiful and, and loving. And so I somehow, what happened was I was at a dinner party and <laughs> and I walked in to the room where, where my husband uh, at the time and, and our friend Kurt were making dinner. And I said, I just got the flash of this melody in my head. And all I can hear is, I am the one who will remember everything. I am the one who will remember everything. Mm-hmm. And it will be this sort of omniscient voice because it's on this album that has to do with Greek mythology and sort of, it will have that kind of omniscient, sort of angry goddess sound. <laughs> and I just <laughs> sort of said this, and I'm pretty sure they turned to me and said, that sounds awful. Um, <laughs> but I'm used to that. So uh, I, so I thought, I am the one who will remember everything. Somehow it, it, it spiraled into that kind of a parental voice. You know, I, I'm the one who will remember, you know, to put in a napkin with your lunch. And I'm the <laughs> one who will remember to, to bring the Neosporin when we go into the woods, you know, and I'll, I'll mm-hmm. teach you how to tie your shoelace and I'll read you books. And so I thought about how right after 9-11, my friend Melinda called me she was in Arlington at the time. I was in New York City. So we were both in cities that were ground zero. And she was very shaken up. And she said, I heard that the Taliban is mostly comprised of the unparented children of the orphaned children in the war between Afghanistan and Russia. So now we know what our job is. And I said, yeah, educate kids, parent them, find a way to parent the children of the world. And she said, yeah, you know, it's because otherwise 20 years from now, those completely dispossessed children will start the next war or be mercenaries for one. We just had such a, an intuitive hit on, okay, now we know what our job is. It's a, it's a long view. It's a 20 year cycle. It's all of those things. So that conversation came back to me as I was thinking about, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of, um, <laughs> the warrior goddess of the ordinary childhood, you know, just the the straight ahead, secure childhood. I thought about those displaced children who had become the Taliban. And of course, every year there's a different population of displaced mm-hmm. children yep. that one could be addressing. Mm-hmm. Syria, Myanmar, Mexico. Exactly. Yep. And um, Mexico, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, it's not funny. I mean, it's, it, it's really it to, to find it in our own borders now. It's all come home. Yes. Has that given the song a new and a different significance for you? Yes. It, it has given the song a different significance because yeah. I see the mechanisms behind the what I consider to be such faceless cruelty. And I can see that that is a breeding ground, as it were, for a generation of kids who, who lack a certain security, basic psychological security. And it's in my own country. So, yes, it does affect uh, my experience of the song. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that you flip between the sort of child's perspective and that kind of omniscient present perspective. I mean, often I think someone can sort of focus on the child's perspective, but I think going from one to the other really draws that contrast, which makes it very interesting. Thank you. Well, I try to, yeah, I mean, you, you try to sort of look at the, the things that will be important to that kid. And then the omniscient voice says, I will provide that. <laughs> I will provide the, the picture books and the band-aids. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep, that's very sweet. Well, tell you what, how about we take a listen to the song and then we can chat a bit more about your career? Yep. 
Sadara, that was I am the one who will remember everything. And I loved your your story about how how that one came about. I'm curious, actually, when you said, um, you know, your friend thought, oh, that sounds awful. And you said you were used to hearing that. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. But and then it was kind of striking. They're like, that sounds terrible. You know, like that. That doesn't sound like a good song. And they were sort of joking because sometimes I will, you know, come in and I'll say, I have this idea for a song and, and it's going to have to do with 
drug company mergers. And, and my friends will be like, Ugh. but I mean, a friend said something really nice to me and I, I, and I wish for this for all songwriters, which is more than one friend has said, you will come to me and you will have an idea and it won't make sense to me, but you've done this enough times that I understand that it makes sense to you. And so you go back and you write this song and then you come comparing the nuclear family to nuclear test sites. And that sounds really <laughs> unworkable. And yet that's the whole thing. Something strikes your head in a new way and, and you put it together and then it makes sense to me. So, you know, one friend said, I hope I'm never the friend that keeps you from following your instincts. Mm -hmm. That's lovely to hear. And I think you're right. More songwriters should hear that because I think a lot of us hear that sort of internal voice going, oh, this is terrible before you even bring it to someone else. Right. And I, the ideal to me is when you hear something in your head and you trust it and you trust it and you, you know, carry that ball along. And then at some point you share it with people who you have come to trust a certain circle of people. Mostly you're just there to say, does this make sense? Is this a song? Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about the muse and how the muse guides you. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about that in terms of what that muse kind of looks like for you and how she shows up to guide you in the different work that you do. Um, I think a muse is sort of the umbrella term <laughs> for that window of inspiration opening. I remember a long time ago, they were soliciting songs for a movie and, and they had to be based on like songs from the 50s. So I listened to a lot of old 50s music and like pop music. And I was on this car ride and I thought, okay, I got to mm -hmm. do this. I just need to start. I need to sort of get a verse underway or something before I get to New York City. And that's, you know, three and a half hours away. And nothing came. I mean, it was, it was really like, it was bleeding a stone. I mean, it was just, or it was trying to get, you know, water out of something that was completely dry. Then a few days later, something struck me, you know, and I got this entry into the song that I wrote. Then I wrote it. And without that initial bolt of lightning or the, mm -hmm. <laughs> the thing that comes after the bolt of lightning, where you kind of figure out what the song is going to be about and you proceed along you know, the lucky rhyme or the, ah, this will be the structure of the song. You know, something, writing a song is not something that you do with the executive function of your brain. And so when some, and, and when something comes to you creatively, for me, it's like I'm, when I say courting the muse, it's like courting that part of me that sees things poetically. You know, like if you're, if you squeeze your toothpaste tube and you roll up the, the end of it and mm -hmm. you're like, wow, that looks like an alligator. Like, that, you know, just that way of seeing <laughs> mm -hmm. things in a formally different way or a poetically different way where you see different meanings and, and different ways of describing your experience, uh, emotional or physical. That's such a fortunate state of being. <laughs> and I call that the muse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's fascinating. I love that. Uh, the toothpaste thing. I've never I've never rolled up toothpaste and thought it looked like an alligator but I will now start to think of it that way so thank you well children children do that mm. but artists do I mean we do that and the other thing that I love is how time can be so different how you can be sitting here and and somehow the past visits you and you sort of you're sort of floating in a not in the time space continuum of your every day that's another kind of wonderful gift of of the creative mind mm -hmm. I think I, I personally kind of love 
just being able to kind of stop in a moment and observe something that I'm seeing. And around Manhattan, you get, obviously get to see so much. Um, mm. And whether it's sort of something between two people and whether it's attention or there's sort of, you know, like a, a look between between people and what that might mean. And you can kind of go off and imagine what that what that conversation is like that's not really being had. For me, I think that's something that I will get it from. But um, yeah, I love the, the different perspectives yeah. thing. Lovely. And in terms of you're obviously such a an open minded songwriter and you, you take these perspectives and these muses and sorry, and, and the muse who, who leads you into these new um, ideas and, and paths in your career. You also run a songwriters retreat up the Hudson River. What brought you to doing that? I was teaching a class uh, at Wesleyan University and I was describing it to a friend of mine and he said, you love this. Do you love being with students and sharing ideas and this whole environment? Why don't you lead a songwriting retreat? And I said, never. I will never do that because people are going to want to know how to make press packs and how to get signed and get agents. And, you know, I have no idea, especially now at this time in history. And he said, well, then you don't have to do that. And I said, yeah, I mean, in order to do it, it would have to be called something like writing a song that matters. And he said, so call it that. <laughs> and I did. And I was going to do it in 2014. Mm-hmm. You know, I went down to this place called the Garrison Institute, which is a repurposed, beautifully revisioned Capuchin monastery. And I went there with my friend, Tom Tataroff, who's an acting coach. And so he leads an acting conservatory. He looked at the space. He looked at me and all my wheels turning. He said, this is going to happen this summer, 2013, <laughs> because this is the space and you are the person and it's April, but you know, put it out there, see who shows up because the Garrison Institute says, sure. You know, I mean, usually they host, you know, environmental summits and silent retreats and Buddhist retreats, but uh, <laughs> they, they gave me this opportunity and we put it out and we filled it up with 25 people. Then the next year we, we had two retreats with 25 people each. And then just last year, it's, it's actually two retreats per summer with 46 or 48 people each, but we've reformatted it so that it's, you know, you can really decide what your process is going to be for the week. We, we offer a lot of structure and then you have the option to take us up on all that structure or make it more of a free freelance freestyle thing for yourself. So um, it has grown beautifully. And I believe you do, you also do one for children. It's true. I did want to, and I did one at Omega, which is wonderful, Omega Institute. But it was during the family week, which is a very special week there. But it could only be kids of adults who were attending. And so it was a large swath of ages and interests and musical abilities or not having musical ability. And I just thought, okay, this is (laughs) like, I would love to just, a lot of people have kids who are interested in writing songs between the ages of 13 and 24, say. And and I wanted to do something that was between, I was thinking like 16 and 24 or something like that. Nobody can ensure something like that, which I understand. So we're still kind of casting about. The reason I wanted to do it is that I, I think at this point, you know, it's very hard to put on a certain mantle. You want to be really careful when you say things, but I feel like I can really be trusted with the fragile psyches of young songwriters. The way that I approach process, I really, I, I've learned about myself that I really do 
love fellow songwriters and really do have a very gentle, permissive attitude towards songwriting. You know, so many things can be called a song and there's so many ways to encourage each other to write the songs that we want to write, no matter how symmetrical or asymmetrical or, you know, free verse or, or very structured they are. I like to sort of find my way standing next to a person as they're going down that path in a way that I'm not going to get in their way, but I can encourage them. Mm -hmm. And I love how you say that it's for anyone. It's, you know, all experiences. Yeah. I think and the one thing that we ask of the people in the, the songwriting retreat at the garrison is that they have written one song and it's amazing how many people show up and they haven't written one song. <laughs> I'm like, well, really, I mean, we, we had this one. Okay. It's because once you've, I mean, you know this, once you've started a song, then found that thing where you don't know how to proceed, but then you figure out how to proceed and then you add a chorus and then it all makes sense. And you even figure out where to put a bridge, maybe, you know, once you've done that thing where you write a song from beginning to end mm -hmm. and you stick to it, even though at some point you have what I call the go no further moment <laughs> and you think you just have to abandon it. Once you have managed to do that sort of pilgrim's progress of writing the whole song, there's no turning back. Then you can write another one and you, you know that you've done it. And so it's good to have a person who has gone through that dark night of the soul <laughs> to, to write it mm -hmm. because then they can come ready to now look at how to, to sculpt those things and express those things even, even more. But at the same time, I don't want to ask somebody to, you know, maybe they don't know where to start and we can show people more or less where we have started and maybe that will help them write their first song. It's, we, that certainly has happened at the retreat. Again, I thank the Muse. I mean, I thank the Garrison Institute. I thank my, my fellow teachers, Rick and Michelle and, and Raquel and um, something about the environment of the other songwriters. First songs also get written there. Mm -hmm. I love how you call it the Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> The Pilgrim's Progress. Well, the Pilgrim's Progress, the book has the, you know, you has all of those, those, it's such a the allegory, you know, you go through the, the slough of despond and the, all of the things that, you know, the swamp of this. Songwriting, I think, also has these milestone moments, you know, what now, is this worth it? And then, you know, that, then there's that little passage, that hall of mirrors that you go through where you're like, it's too long, it's too short, it sounds like another song, it yep. sounds you know, who cares? It sounds like my other songs, you know, all of that. There's that thing that you have to go through and then you go out the other side and you're like, okay, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's too long. Maybe it's too short. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to write it anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. I actually haven't read that book, but I was thinking about um, The Artist's Way. I'm not sure if you've read that one. Oh yeah. Lovely. I, that, that book is really, I mean, I'm writing a, a book called Writing a Song That Matters to you and who knows <laughs> i think that's going to be its subtitle write a song that matters to you first or something like that feels <laughs> like it matters to you and then and then maybe it'll be a hit maybe it'll be a flop maybe it won't make sense you know just write it so i was talking to the people that i'm going to be working with at Hachette and talking about my book in relationship <laughs> with the artist way because that book i think the most successful books that I've encountered don't necessarily focus on the product of what you're writing. They focus on the process and on you as the emotional, psychological being who's heading into all of that. 
that was very helpful to me. The idea of you know falling in love with the, the process, I think, is definitely one that a lot of people sometimes forget. And you know, with with this sort of Instagram age that we're in, it's about kind of that you know getting to that next level of looking like you're that successful. And a lot of people forget that fall in love with the process, and you know, it's not about the product or the or the end state. I suppose in terms of where you're where you may see your career going yeah yeah and it's it that's interesting I love I've met a lot of young songwriters at this point and I can tell I met one young woman and it was really lovely like she she was wealthy she and her parents wanted to give her everything that she could ever have to help her on the songwriting process so in terms of her voice her performance her instrument but what I noticed is that she just got it about being interested in, in finding this grain of the song and then growing it into the bigger song and doing something I call harvesting metaphors. So you have a metaphor that you start with in the beginning and you're able to sort of bring it through the song without overworking it. And then it kind of bears fruit at some point, like the metaphor just keeps on getting deeper and more interesting. And I saw her as she was singing, how she had created, you know, these things that had been interesting to her and that had sparked for her. And I just thought, that's the secret. It's not her voice or her guitar playing or her, you know, the opportunities that she's gotten to play, you know, in, in, in various showcases. It's that down to the sitting cross-legged on your bed with your guitar going, oh my gosh, what about this? Oh, this is cool. Why don't I? <laughs> and, and I, yeah, I wish that for every young kid because I've seen some kids perform something that seems really sort of derivative and proficient and they'll look at me like so that's great right and I'll just think I don't I don't see you in it I don't see you in it I don't see where you joined with the process and it seems kind of Instagrammy they kind of created the thing that looked like the thing that looks good on Instagram and then they look to us to say so that's good right and it's like I, I don't I I've been writing songs for a long time and I'm not sure if I'm hearing a process that went into that as opposed to, you know, a facsimile. So, um, you know, what do I know? But <laughs> I've been worried sometimes. I feel like I can tell when it, when someone has gone into that crucible <laughs> of creativity and come out with a song versus, you know, just creating something that looks right. Mm -hmm. It's the sort of idea of hashtag authenticity. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, gosh, we're up against, I mean, I, I'm glad that I came of age when I did, because there was a kind of, you know, the sixties, I mean, I would, I wasn't growing up in the sixties. I grew up in, you know, the eighties and nineties, but the, the sixties, they said that the motto of the sixties was, are you trying to say it or are you trying to sell it? And so there was always this ear that people were, uh, you know, opening up to the music around them saying, like Bobby Newworth in uh, Don't Look Back, the, the documentary about Bob Dylan, he said, we were always, even if it was a jazz concert with no words, you'd come back from the concert and your roommate would say, did they have something to say? Mm. And that thing, that expectation, do you have something to say, was really on my shoulders in college and, I mean, in high school. Like, do you have something to say? Because if you don't, then, you know, do something else. <laughs> <laughs> find a way to, to say something in your life, you know, maybe not in music, maybe you'll have another profession. So um, that priority, all of that music, that, that all of that folk music from the sixties, that, that really influenced me, you know, to the point of being very nervous, you know, if I didn't feel like I had something to say. Mm -hmm. 
And I'd love to just uh, touch back on, so you said you're writing a new book. Yes. So you've currently, you know, an established author already. You've written two children's books and uh, a book called What I Found in a Thousand Towns about your, your time on the road and what you've seen in communities. Um, and this one will be more about songwriting? Yes. So this is a this is probably more a, a <laughs> what people would be expecting. And it's going to be based on having, you know, led almost 20 retreats at this time between the Garrison Institute and Omega and some other places. So I'm enjoying it. It's 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 going to be short essays. It's not going to be a kind of a read it all the way through. It's it's going to hopefully it's going to be something that you could just keep in places where you you just want to read a little bit at a time. And yes, and and what I found in a thousand towns is actually about the increase of of life in towns and cities that I've seen. I actually think that we are entering a golden age, and there's a reason for that. You know that that people have found what I call their positive proximity, which means that they walk out the door and sense that they live around other people and that that's beneficial. You know, they don't just say, "Oh my gosh, I have neighbors. What a nightmare." They they know that they're going to have to work with people and collaborate with them. And uh, I think that there has been a real increase in that over the last 20 years. When I first started touring, things were getting kind of wastelandish. The, the big boxes had really sucked all this life out of the downtowns. And then this life came back. And I was just completely fascinated by like, how did the life come back? It wasn't supposed to come back. You know, it just got worse. I mean, it, after the, the malls came, the big boxes came, the internet came all of the things that divide us, uh, you know, in terms of news outlets and like all sorts of, there were all sorts of reasons for people not to find their way back to the village green. And yet they did. So I wrote a book that, that basically was sort of a guide and also a witness of how people found their way back into a very collaborative, interesting way of being towns and cities that in the 21st century is also more inclusive so it, they have what I call a, a hometown pride and a worldly welcome. So they're not this kind of provincial xenophobic, you know, <laughs> you go in and everything's nice, but everyone's kind of nervous and bigoted. It's like, no, people are worldly. They let in a lot of performances. They let in a lot of ideas. They, they've, they're much more inclusive of different lifestyles and backgrounds. And yet they're still very proud to live where they live. I think that we're actually going to see, you know, if, if we can, sort of find confidence in the fact that that's happening, I think that could be a real launching pad for addressing, you know, a lot of the things that we're facing in our democracy. Right. I think that's sort of what I find quite interesting about the idea is that you have a real hopeful outlook on it in a time when we're, you know, globally, we're seeing a lot of nationalism, a lot of xenophobia, and yet sort of at a grassroots level, you're seeing a real acceptance for, for people in their hometowns and, and that growth of community. Yes. I mean, I think what's crazy is that I think everybody sees it. I mean, if you think about where we were at, you know, the songs that I wrote 30 years ago, almost like when I was a boy, you know, I say when I was a boy, I did this. And at the end, there's mm -hmm. a character in the song who's a man. And he's like, you know what? When I was a girl, I was able to talk to my mom. I was able to cry. And that song was like, whoa, you know, you were either writing about alternative sexual orientations or you were a feminist. The idea that you were going to bring up some dude and his experience of having been a more gentle person and, and having emotions and picking flowers, like you're writing about a dude, what's that? You know, what I was writing about was gender and gender now is something that we're really used to looking at and 
anywhere you go, you're looking at its fluidity, whether it's sexual orientation or not. And that's a beautiful, like that's a huge revolution. And then also when I wrote the song, The Christians and the Pagans, you know, it's like, oh, how funny she's writing about pagans. Paganism is everywhere. Every religion is is everywhere now. You know, everywhere I go, I see more inclusion. I see a greater awareness of the fact that the present has placed that upon us to 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 really be truly the Americans that we set out to be in terms of being inclusive of other lifestyles and figuring out how to like my big motto coming out of my book was that the opposite of division is not unity, it's collaboration. So I think that people have come out of feeling divided with one another historically or by various media outlets, and they have realized that they can work together really well and they don't have to like each other. (laughs) They don't have to love each other. They don't have to hug each other and they're not going to, but they can clear off a waterfront and have a poetry reading and maybe have a 5k race and see what happens from there. So that's by all indicators around us, we are a more collaborative country right now. And yet nationalism is on the rise everywhere in the world. And that's nothing that I can, you know, there's certainly no glossing over that and nor would I intend to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is sort of a slightly tenuous link, but your latest album, you went independent and you actually crowdsourced it. So in terms of people collaborating with you to make a new album, what was that like for you? Um, you know, I just, I, I'm friends with the guys who are, were the owners of Razor and Tie. And I mean, I really love them like brothers. And yes, so that was my record label for, for 20 years. And I couldn't understand how they would make like I thought well, we're not making records anymore what, how would they make money and in the time of God's you know I said okay so we're going to do this record and it's going to be this budget and they said oh no it's going to be like a fifth of what any other budget has been before and I said what? and they said look at the contract you know you, you didn't sell this amount of records so we don't have to give you we proportionately will give you a lot less I was like but it's it's different world now you know that and And we were kind of caught, we were all kind of caught in the cracks. And I just thought, I don't want to have that relationship with my record label. I don't want to be fighting all the time about this stuff. And I'm very hands-on. I like this, like knowing stuff. So I knew the producers that I liked and the mixers that I liked and all sorts of stuff like that. And and I knew who could take my picture and I knew how to get it pressed. And so I just thought, okay, I'll do a, a crowdsourcing I also was curious because I was leading the retreats for other songwriters and writing about sort of the state of media these days for us musicians. So I was curious and it was terrible. I mean, it was, it was easy. I mean, I knew how to do it, but I can't imagine starting from scratch. I think the model was really weird. I think that Pledge should have gotten in touch with places like Paste and Rolling Stone and places that would talk about your upcoming album and say, you know, don't call it donations. Say that you can pre-order the album. You can get something. Don't, (laughs) you know, one of the magazines said, if you want to donate to, and I thought, I'm not a hurricane. I'm not a charity. This is, I'm a musician. And if you want something, then you can do this. You know, so the language was all wrong. It had a kind of a charity feel to it. And 
that exhausted people. People weren't quite sure how to do it. It wasn't well disseminated. I mean, I love the people at Pledge, but I could see what an obstacle they were facing in terms of how we frame this for listeners now so that somehow we can collectively monetize the recording process. Yeah, and just to be clear for, for our listeners, I mean, pledge if, if they're not songwriters, but Pledge Music has obviously since gone into liquidation. And it's funny when you talk about donations. I mean, even the logo for Pledge Music looks like some sort of charity. It's sort of like a sort of red heart-shaped thing. Yeah, funny. Mm. But what was it like for you? Because I think, you know, when you, when you crowdsource and you ask your fans and you give different levels of what they can kind of get from you in terms of that access and various levels of in pre-ordering, if you like, you know, they could, for instance, just get a CD or they could get a CD and a T-shirt as part of a bundle. Was there anything that you offered that was, was you know, different in terms of what you could give them? No, I went with their cues and I actually kind of wish that I had been more selective. There was a kind of a do this, do this, do this. And so we, like, I did, I did be friend. I planted be friendly gardens with summer camps. Like I would sing and then we would plant together. And again, that was sort of my phobia of teaching songwriting. I didn't, (laughs) so I was like, I'll just plant plants with them. And we'll talk about bees, you know, we'll talk about pollination and chemicals. (laughs) Um, So I offered that and, and I did some planting of, of gardens with some really great people. I mean, I got a lot out of it because I met really cool people and, and so we sent out seeds to people <laughs> too for, for nasturtiums and beans and things like that. So that was fun. The thing that I got a lot out of was people would ask for handwritten lyrics to songs. That was a real bat breaker because, you know, you get one, you get it wrong and you have to start over again. So it was, it was like a real, like, it was a massive focus moment. It was hard <laughs> for me, but, uh-huh. um, but I got to to write out my lyrics and remember the process of writing them and remember performing them and the the feedback I'd gotten about specific lines and things. It was a kind of a close study of my songs. And then I heard really nice stories about where people had put the, the lyrics, you know, that they, I have a song called the one who knows and people had like put it right over their baby's crib. And like, there was an intimacy to that, that I was, I was so, you know, flattered, I guess. And, but also, in the memory of what it is to to create a song, I think that was very meaningful. And then there's other things like, you know, having coffee with people and doing concerts for people and I'm social. So it was fine for me, but I think for my introverted friends, that would have been a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of introverted artists around. (laughs) Um, One final question for you. This is more my fun question. So on your imaginary iPod right now, Dar, what are your top three most played songs? Um, you know, I don't know why this came up. There is this weird thing that we're a part of now that I, where you just go, Siri, play this song. And, and any song in the world will come up. When I listen to a song, I'll listen to it like 80 times in a row. And for some mm-hmm. reason, I can't stop listening to this song, Shock the Monkey by Peter Gabriel. Like, it's just such brilliant production. <laughs> so so that's there. My kids... Um, I was in the car with these sweet little skinny little girls. You know, we went to the mall and we came back and there were like four girls and they were alternating with my iPhone, just, uh, you know, asking for songs. This is like six months ago. And I really just can't get enough of Lizzo. Like I heard, <laughs> I tossed my hair back, <laughs> check my nails. Baby, how you doing? I'm going to tell. And there are all these little, little skinny girls like chirping along with this. And it was so amazing you know just it's such a uh 
such a world around that. And, um, and then the Kendrick Lamar song, I love myself, but I don't think it's called that. So, <laughs> so basically those are the three songs I can't get enough of right now. Good as hell. I love myself. <laughs> Shot the monkey. <laughs> it's quite a range, <laughs> but you know, next week it'll be next week. It'll be different, but, but I'm so grateful to my kids. <laughs> I mean, that's not the reason I had them, but you know, the fact that they introduced me to new songs, like grudgingly, I'm like, I don't really want to hear this. And then it grows on me. It has been really like blown the roof off and kept me open. You know, it's not like I'm going to write stuff that sounds like that. <laughs> Never, you know, I, I love Laurie Anderson. Like that's really who I listen to in my teens mm-hmm. uh, and Elvis Costello, but I write songs that don't sound like that. But yeah, um, I'm just my kids are really blowing my mind and, and sometimes I resist and, and they just keep on going. And I think that's been really good for me. Yeah. That, that different perspective again, I guess. Yeah. Coming back. Um, so coming up for you, you've got a, a West coast tour in January. You're playing Kayamo in 2020. That's exciting. Yeah. But uh, your final show of the year is uh, the bell house in Brooklyn. Yes. I'm, uh, there's this week between Christmas and new year's that is really fun. To, it's like every day, whether it's a Tuesday or a Monday, it's all like a weekend, you know, so that whole, so I'm doing four shows. I'm playing up in Beverly, Massachusetts, and then I'm doing my annual Christians, Pagans, and Other Hipsters <laughs> concert at Bell House, which I love. And uh, with Heather Maloney, she's, she'll be with me for all the shows. And and then I'm going to be playing at the New Hope Winery for two nights for, for New Year's. Well, Dar, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much um, for joining us. It's been such a just a, a journey into songwriting that I've, I've really appreciated as, a, as an artist myself. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And thank you for exploring the whole thing. It's, it's so, it's, it's huge and it's wonderful. So thank you. Um, I will put the details for um, your songwriting retreat and some of the other things that we've discussed uh, in the details for today's podcast. Uh, thank you. Excellent. And Dara, if, uh, I probably won't speak to you before then, but have a wonderful Christmas. You too. You too. Thanks so much. And, uh, and, we'll, and we'll cross paths, I'm sure, sometime uh, in the near future in, in the five boroughs. <laughs> Dar Williams. If you want to find out more about Dar, her website is a wealth of information from her song lyrics to her books and retreats. So head over there and check it out. All those details are in today's episode. And if you want to get your hands on an exclusive live recording of Dar's When I Was a Boy that she talked about during today's episode, there is another link in the episode details. That is our final show of the year, and in fact, the decade. That's so scary. We are back January 8th for a special mini-sode edition where we chat to Rebecca Lobie, who you may remember from The Voice, and she will be talking to us about her Patreon success, giving us her top tips on how to be a successful independent artist. Thank you so much for listening this year. This podcast is such a pleasure to make. I really enjoy connecting with you guys and obviously the wonderful artists who who give us their time and share their stories. But for right now, wishing you a very happy holiday season and prosperous new year. I'm Stephanie Manns. I'll see you next time. New York Artists Collective.